Alright, so today we are talking about a huge scumbag. Guy's name is Art Schleister. He's known for a couple of things, mainly being a draft bust. He was taken fourth overall, did not ever amount to anything in the NFL. And the reason he didn't amount to anything, well, he sucked, first of all. Second of all, this dude was a degenerate gambler. He stole so many millions of dollars over his entire course of his gambling career. He gets convicted, and we'll talk about it. So his first, his real name is Arthur. His full name is Arthur Ernest Schleister. Uh, he was born April 25th, 1960 in Bloomingburg, Ohio. Schleister was a football and a basketball star at a place called Miami Trace High School in Ohio. He never lost a game as a high school quarterback in 30 starts across, you know, freshman to senior year, never lost a game. What he did do, the only blemish you could argue he had one tie which is i imagine the refs just wanted to go home also football overtime is a fucking joke especially in the nfl i think college in my opinion is the only league that does it right i've never seen you know a canadian football league overtime or an arena football league overtime but i imagine it's still not as good as college football um like i told you his gambling is what we're talking about. That's that's going to be the meat and potatoes kind of of what we've got going on here. His gambling started in high school with a visit to a famous harness racing track called Shioto Downs. And I'm actually going to quick look it up, see how it's pronounced. I don't know how it's pronounced. It's spelled S-C-I-O-T-O Downs. Um which is a racetrack near Columbus, Ohio. So he and a couple of his friends pooled all of their money together, what they had at the time, to bet on one race at the Shioto Downs. Turns out they got the right pick. They ended up winning. And as I think a lot of gamblers will talk about, the first time you win, that's all you're chasing, right? You're not, you're not continuing to gamble to lose you're chasing that feeling of winning. And to start with a win, you know, you could say that that could be part of why he continued down the path he would go down because he came back. You know, he quickly became a regular. And even till, you know, probably now, he has said that that place is his favorite track, probably in a lot of nostalgia because we'll talk more about he goes back there a lot. After high school, had a lot of offers, but being an Ohio guy, you go to Ohio State University, the Ohio State University. Uh, he was a four-year starter as a quarterback, and his college stats are not good, to be quite honest with you. We'll talk about him. He was the last quarterback coached by Woody Hayes, who is a famous Ohio State, uh, like, like a legend of a coach, mainly 
well, his career ended <laughs> very poorly. He went out, he went out bad. So, Woody Hayes, quarterback for Arch Leicester, uh, in the Gator Bowl, 1978, Schleister threw an interception to a middle linebacker, or I'm not even 100% sure if it was a linebacker. I'll have to look it up. But this pass is so fucking bad. It's literally one of the worst passes I've ever seen. You should you should watch the video. But he throws an interception, and the guy's running it back. They were playing against Clemson, so the Clemson linebacker picks it off, and is taking it back and he gets pushed out the sideline and it's Ohio State sideline dude gets pushed into this coach Woody Hayes and for whatever goddamn reason Woody just tries to at, just karate chop this dude's fucking neck and Woody got fired the very next day as a result you know you can't you can't do that obviously but it's hilarious because you look at the video and Woody Hayes is just ancient fucking dude he would have gotten drilled into the fucking dirt by this guy the Clemson linebacker was a guy named Charlie Bauman or Bowman it's B-A-U-M-A-N so that was a you know that's a big major event of Art's college career but also you know even though I, I think his career sucks he did finish in the top six in Heisman voting during his last three years at Ohio State uh, I'll pull up his stats here. All right, so his college stats, 1978, that's the year at the Gator Bowl. He essentially, you know, gets his coach fired. So that year he finished playing all 12 games, starting all 12 games. He completed 87 passes out of 175 attempts for a 49.7 completion percentage. He threw for 1,250 yards decent not great he threw four touchdowns in 21 interceptions that's absolute ass the weird thing is he ran the ball a lot as a quarterback um he ran the ball 157 times he literally ran the ball as much as he tried to pass it uh he ran for 590 yards and 13 touchdowns as a quarterback I'm not sure if 1978 Woody Hayes was just really into the mobility, but it's just fucking bizarre that he threw 21 interceptions but ran for 13 touchdowns. Either way, 1979, again, all 12, all 12 games. He, he'll play in all 12 games his entire career at Ohio State. Uh, he completed 105 passes out of 200. So, uh, 52.5 completion percentage. He threw for 14 touchdowns and six interceptions. So, he cleaned up the interceptions, but he still only threw one more touchdown than he ran for as a freshman. Uh, this year, again, he runs the ball a ton. He runs it 133 times for nine touchdowns. Oh, nine touchdowns, 430 yards. It's... it's I'd, I would love to go back and watch some of these games to see what that looks like. Uh, 1980, he completes 122 passes out of 226 attempts for a 54 completion percentage, 54%. Throws 15 touchdowns, 9 interceptions, so, you know, decent, not great. Those numbers don't even get you looked at in the current NCAA. 
Um, runs the ball 143 times for 325 yards and seven touchdowns. And then, coming into his senior year, 1981, throws 183 passes that are completed out of 350. Um, so he's starting to sling the ball slowly more and more. But, you know, this year he throws for 2,551 yards, 17 touchdowns, 10 interceptions. Running, he ran the ball 80 times for negative 42 yards and six touchdowns. So I think you can tell by his increased passing attempts and the negative 42 yards, he was probably way more of a pocket passer and he just got fucking sacked a lot. I'm sure his O-line sucked ass. So final career stats as a passer, he threw for 7,547 yards, 50 touchdowns, 46 interceptions, and a 52% completion percentage running um, or rushing stats, 513 attempts for 1,303 yards and 35 touchdowns. It's kind of crazy. So that's him. That's him. That's college. Now, those are just his college stats. We have stories about him gambling in college, too. So this entire time during his college career, he goes back to, you know, this is a problem with staying home. You know everything. He didn't leave the state to go to college. He stayed in Ohio. It's what he knew. And what that led to was him being frequently spotted at Shioto Downs, continuing to gamble. Uh, he was there with a prominent Ohio gambler, whatever that means. I'm sure you're a fucking degenerate to be known as a at a state level as a prominent gambler you can be known as like a prominent casino gambler like oh i see that dude all the time to be known in the state you're probably a fucking degenerate so although columbus and ohio state uh police departments became suspicious of this because this is a problem you know as an ncaa athlete you are not supposed to receive any sort of gift any sort of anything from anybody essentially because you could be receiving those gifts as a result of your play on the field, which technically in the NCAA's eyes relinquishes you of your amateurism, which is a word they created so they didn't have to pay these athletes. So Columbus Police Department, Ohio State Police Department, neither of them could like find enough evidence that he was receiving money from this Ohio gambler to enforce anything about it. Um, so by his junior year at Ohio State, he kind of became less interested in the horse gambling and way more into betting on sporting events, you know, games and shit like that. Um, by the end of his junior year, he had, he had lost $1,000 gambling on college and professional sports. This is 1980. Thousand dollars in 1980 is still a substantial amount of money. Well, a thousand dollars in 2020 is a lot of money. It's what the government gives us as a result of a pandemic. But you know, take it back into 1980. Let's check the conversion. All right. So quick Google search. One thousand dollars in 1980. It's about three times as much. Three thousand dollars. So still, imagine losing three grand right now. 
as a college junior you know probably if you're able to do that you're getting enabled by one person or another you know the other thing about his gambling at the racetrack remember how we said he got his coach fired Woody Hayes well Schleister would show up to that same racing track that he was at wow with the gambler the same one from high school um with Woody Hayes successor as head coach a guy named Earl Bruce so to show up at a gambling track with your head coach like what people say that this is kind of what enabled him also he's got his coaches being like oh art's good bro like i'm at the track with him like we're up to cool shit right now don't worry about us all right so following his college career he was well liked by a lot of nfl scouts which just kind of goes to show you how much the league has changed somebody like that probably doesn't even get signed to a practice squad like i mean being quarterback at ohio state carries a lot of like oh wow I think Ohio State has become a bigger deal since then. I don't honestly know. But he was liked by scouts, and he was picked fourth overall in the 1982 NFL Draft by the Baltimore Colts. You might recognize them. They are now the Indianapolis Colts. Um, They actually moved from Baltimore to Indianapolis two years after this draft. So... When you're drafted fourth overall, most of the time, unless you're being drafted to a team that has, you know, already like an established starter in the quarterback slot, uh, you, so if you're drafted fourth overall as a quarterback, there's a good chance you might end up being the starter by the time the season starts, unless the team got the fourth overall pick as a result of a you know, trade or starting quarterback got injured the year before. Either way, like, if you get the fourth overall pick, chances are your team sucks, your quarterback sucks. Either way, even if you have a good quarterback, you don't take a quarterback with your fourth overall pick. You take a lineman, you take a receiver, you take somebody on defense. So when you're drafted fourth overall as a quarterback, you're expected to start. Now, the problem for Art is that uh, as an expected starter, he immediately lost the job as starter to a guy named Mike Pagel, who that in that same draft was taken in the fourth round. If you're taken as a fourth-round quarterback, yeah, you are not expected to start, especially as a rookie. You're, you might not even start for another five years. You probably get traded or you sign with a second team before you even get a chance to start, or two people go down ahead of you, and you uh, you became the, you become the starter that way. Even though he lost the job, Colts still looked at him and were like, "All right, well, took this dude with the fourth overall pick. Let's try and turn him into the quarterback of the future." But here's the thing about Art, and this is where it gets a lot more fun not for the victims involved it's just fun to laugh at this dude we'll say that um his gambling continued he threw away his entire three hundred and fifty thousand dollar signing bonus by week eight you know mid-season um 
and we'll do a quick search to see how much that is. Well, without even having to do a Google search, if one thousand dollars was three thousand in nineteen eighty, it's safe to assume this is a million dollar signing bonus, essentially, roughly. He blew that by midseason. Um, his gambling was spiraling out of control, especially in 1982, there was the NFL strike, which we'll talk about. So in 1982, the NFL strike started on September uh, 21st. It only lasted 57 days, ending in about the middle of November. But during this time on strike, not a single NFL game was played. And the strike kind of kicked off because the uh, players union demanded that there be a wage scale implemented that was based on percentage of like gross revenue. So the wages of the players had to be a percentage of like the total revenue of the NFL, you know, collectively ads, TV deals, things like that. Players had to get some level of a percentage of that. And the NFL Player Association wanted that percentage to be 55%. So they think that players should be making 55% at least of what the league generates in terms of income. And that, when that was brought to negotiations, it was the only thing people could talk about. During the 1982 strike, the NFL Players Association promoted two AFC versus NFC quote-unquote all-star games one was held in washington dc in october and the other was held in la the very next day only a few of the stars who actually did play because it was not an all-star game by any means the people who were actually all-stars were striking uh, one of the few was a running back named john riggins who said quote i guess i'll do just about anything for money which i can really feel that i'm starting a fucking podcast in my bedroom at my mom's house uh despite a local tv blackout and ticket prices starting at just six dollars not a single game drew much attendance at all in washington dc there were only like nine thousand people and in la just five thousand people and these are fifty thousand plus stadium people like nobody's fucking going to this no all-star showed up with no nfl games on what cbs did was replay the previous super bowl and also air d3 football which i actually would watch people people like to shit on d3 people like to be like oh you didn't go d1 you went d2 there's a lot of there's some gold moments in d3 football an example of one of these d3 games was um a place called Baldwin Wallace, which is a university, um, and Wittenberg for Wittenberg University. And those that game was called by Pat Summerall and John Madden, who are legends of NFL broadcasting. John Madden, also a legend of football coaching. Uh, at the same time of the strike, NBC acquired rights to the Canadian Football League which the rights were previously owned by ESPN. And, you know, to NBC's credit, they aired them with NFL-like production value. Unfortunately, the first four games that it aired were all just fucking blowouts. Um, and as a result, because nobody likes watching blowouts. It's never fun. I'm trying to think. 
what Super Bowl it was, but it was the one Seattle versus the Broncos where they were just dancing on Peyton Manning's fucking grave. Um, nobody fucking watched that game because it was over by the end of the first half. And as a result, people started watching that Super Bowl. Just like that, as a result, NBC just said, fuck it, and canned the Canadian Football League. So the strike continued and continued, but it finally ended with a player's revolt against their own union. Uh, As a result of the strike, the season schedule was reduced from 16 games to 9, and the playoffs was expanded to 16 teams, with 8 coming from each conference, for what was essentially a Super Bowl tournament. Which I did not know this before reading this, this seems pretty fucking interesting to be honest. A new five-year agreement was ratified, which provided severance packages. Uh, To players upon retirement, there was an increase in salaries as well as postseason pay and bonuses based on the number of years of experience in the league. Additionally, the NFLPA was allowed to receive copies of all players' contracts. His gambling just completely spiraled out of control during that whole 1982 NFL strike. Um, During that time, he lost $20,000 betting on college football, which again, if we're following the rough estimate of about three times percent he lost you know sixty thousand dollars in modern money by the end of the strike he had at least seven hundred thousand dollars in gambling debts let that sink in seven hundred thousand dollars in 1982 by the end of the strike this dude's been in the league for this is the same year he was drafted he has been in the league less than one entire season $700,000 in debt, which again, multiply that by three to get like 2021 money. Years later, he said his massive losses would have, they stemmed from, quote, desperate efforts to make good his previous losses, which is just what fucking gamblers do. They're always trying to validate themselves, validate why they did what they did. Oh, you know, I was gambling because, you know, I had uh, had all these other debts and I was trying to make up those debts. But no, bro, you're just a degenerate. After losing $20,000 in the first week of the strike, he doubled it up the next week and then lost again, which started that cycle. According to him, that's how this all spiraled out of control was. Hey, you know, it's the NFL strike. I've got nothing better to do. I got all this money. I just got drafted. Let's go ahead and throw $20,000 on a bet. Oh, I lost. All right, cool. Let's do it again. Double or nothing. And that supposedly, according to him, is how he lost or ended up losing $700,000. In the winter of 1982 and then into the spring of 1983, Schleister said he had lost $489,000 betting on basketball games and that his bookies threatened to expose him if he did not pay it up. The reason they said that they would expose him is that the NFL forbids players from any type of gambling, you know, legal or otherwise. There's a couple current states, I think there's like 10 that allow for, you know, legal sportsbook gambling. Doesn't even matter if you're in the NFL and you play in one of those states, no chance. You're still not going to be able to bet. So after, you know, getting in this much debt, Schleister went to the FBI in March of 1983 you know, because he he was terrified. He has all these bookies. He's down half a million dollars in 1983. 
bookie, you know, being a bookie is illegal. So how do you make up $500,000 lost to bookies? You snitch on your bookies. So in March of 1983, Schleister went to the FBI and all of his bookies got arrested on federal charges. He also at this time went to the NFL for help because he was worried that his bookies were going to request, you know, kind of blackmail him into throwing games for the Colts in in exchange for him, you know, they would bet on those games, things like that. In exchange for that, they would not come to the NFL and tell them what their number four overall pick was getting up to. He obviously decided that, fuck it, I'll just snitch on him. You know, maybe lose a year for my career. We'll get back to it next year. No more gambling. So to get help from the NFL, he had to admit to it to them. So the league suspended him um, indefinitely. And NFL Commissioner Pete Rozelle reduced the suspension to only 13 months after Schleister agreed that he would seek treatment for his gambling. So his suspension went essentially from potentially a lifetime it's only 13 months, one year, one season. Um, once Schleister said, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll try and get help for this. Schleister was the first NFL player to be suspended for gambling since a guy named Alex Carra and Paul Hornug were suspended in 1963 for also betting on NFL games. He was reinstated for the 1984 season, but as a, what would come as a surprise to no one, he later admitted that he had gambled during his entire suspension, but he claimed he never gambled on football during this time, which, I don't know, if you choose to believe him, you're a fucking idiot. I'm sure he gambled on football. He was then released by the Colts five games into the 1985 season, in part because the Colts had heard rumors he was gambling again, in other part because he just was not good at an NFL level. Um, as it turned out, he had lost, again, a significant amount of money over the spring and summer while playing golf and wrote one of his golfing partners a check for $2,000. The check was to be cashed after the season had started because that was when Art would then be getting paid. The golfer, knowing that Schleser is a gambler and a degenerate, uh, called the Colts to verify that the check was going to be good come the start of the season. At that point, team and league officials pretty much realized Schleister had again relapsed. The check wasn't going to be good. The league wanted him to take a lie detector test, but Colts coach Rod Dowhauer had already seen enough and convinced the Colts front office to release him. Like, that's what I mean. Like, he was not good at an NFL level, and he had his gambling problem, and his coach was just like, I, let's fucking cut the bullshit. This dude, we're not going to put him in front of a lie detector test. Even if he passes, we don't want him on the fucking team. And that was essentially his, that is his NFL career. Released in 1985, drafted in 1982, fourth overall. That's his NFL career. We'll get to his arena football career. But that, you know, NFL is the league that matters. It's the shield. They all say that makes a billion plus dollars a year. And that was it. Number four overall pick, you know. Never really a Heisman favorite, but was in Heisman voting. You know, the goal is never to play in the Canadian Football League or to play in the Arena Football League. It's to make it to the NFL. And this was it for him. One funny little extra thing about his NFL career, he did sign 
with the Buffalo Bills in 1986 as a free agent after being cut by the Colts. But his tenure in Buffalo ended when the United States Football League went under quarterback Jim Kelly, who played in the United States Football League, was drafted to the NFL by the Bills. He was their 1983 first round pick. Jim Kelly opted because if you don't know at this time, there's two different leagues. There's the USFL and there's the NFL. Both were holding drafts. You could draft, you know, Jim Kelly is a perfect example. He was drafted by the Bills in the NFL. And I can't remember who he was drafted by in the USFL, but he, he preferred the team in the USFL and signed with them instead. But the USFL had no funding. It collapsed because he was then because he was originally drafted by the Bills, he then signed with them. The Bills had intended for Kelly to be their quarterback of the future. The entire time, they were trying to convince him to come back out of the USFL. But now that Kelly had no other option but to be the Bills quarterback, they the Bills released Schleister. He sucked. Uh, he sat out the 1986 season after no other team expressed interest. You did, this is the type of dude you wouldn't want to touch with a 10-foot pole. And people in the NFL are already understanding that. And it's crazy to see how it will go in the future for him in terms of, like, asking people for money, giving people bad checks. The NFL knew it in 1986 not to fuck with this dude. Unfortunately, we still got another couple of decades of people who did not learn that lesson. So in January of 1987, uh, Schleister was arrested in New York City uh, for his involvement in a multi-million dollar uh, sports betting operation. He pleaded guilty to illegal gambling that April and was sentenced to probation. That same arrest came back to haunt him that summer as the Cincinnati Bengals saw enough promise in him that they were willing to bring him on as Boomer Esiason's backup. And you can imagine that's a pretty big deal for an Ohio kid. Cincinnati Bengals or the Cleveland Browns are one of your two home state teams to have them interested in you. you most people would not want to fuck that up. But Commissioner Pete Rozelle would not approve of the Bengals signing him mainly because Schleister was arrested in a multi-million dollar sports betting operation. Pete Rozelle after you know disapproving of everything went on record saying he wouldn't allow any contract for Arch Slicer. not a single team was going to be allowed to sign him because Pete Rozelle felt like he made the league look bad following not being allowed to join the Bengals in 1987 Art again applied for reinstatement in 1988 but was again turned down that same year, 1988, he also filed for bankruptcy in an attempt to shield himself from his creditors. We'll talk about his debts. It's, it's insane. So he, like, like I was kind of talking about earlier, that's his NFL career. In parts of three seasons, Schleister played only 13 games, primarily in backup or garbage time, fucking shit time roles. He only started six of those 13 games, didn't win a single one. He threw 202 passes, completed 91 of them, not good. He threw three touchdowns and 11 interceptions. Sounds a lot like his freshman year at Ohio State. 
Total QBR for his entire career, 42.6. If you don't know anything, that's not fucking good. And it's funny, uh, NFL Network on their top 10 NFL draft busts ranked him number seven all time, which I guess it's better than being number one. In terms of quarterback draft busts, he was ranked behind uh, Jamarcus Russell and Ryan Leaf. Years after this, Schleister said that he was distracted for much of his NFL career. Again, he's trying to make an excuse. Uh, he said he went through a messy breakup with his girlfriend right before his rookie season. Oh, poor me. And that ensuing depression made him gamble more. Oh, poor guy. He also said that he felt that the accolades he received after his sophomore year at Ohio State diminished his drive and he had this pressure of living up to the praise. You know, being told he was good at football somehow made him want to gamble more. He, I guess he's trying to say it was his coping mechanism, which it might be. You know, there are a lot of people who do suffer from an addiction to gambling, but we'll see again the shit he will do to scam money off of people is not acceptable in any capacity whether it's he's using his gambling as you know essentially like therapy for himself it does not make anything he does to his future victims okay he was still trying to get back into football though following his nfl career and this is where we'll talk he did try to sign with the canadian football league ottawa rough riders which I want to say is like one of only three teams I ever hear about. Maybe they send a lot of guys to the NFL. Maybe the Ottawa Rough Riders are a good team. Either way, he signed with them and was actually named the starter at the start of camp, but he suffered broken ribs and uh, was waived midway through the season. So a little payback. He then played for the Arena Football League, which if you're one of the tens of Arena Football League fans, you might know this this guy, Art, for another reason. He played for the Detroit Drive in 1990 and 1991 and led them to a third consecutive league title in 1990. That same year, he was also the league MVP. He was then traded to the expansion Cincinnati Rockers before the 1992 season. They figured they'd bring him in. He's an Ohio guy. They're an expansion team. Maybe put some asses in seats. And he actually ended up leading them to the playoffs in their first season after the draft. Kind of looks like a good move by the Rockers. But he announced he wouldn't return to the team the next year, intending instead to focus on curing his gambling addiction. Because he wants to be better. Guys, he's working hard to be better. But... There are a lot of other reasons we'll talk about. So, <clears throat> that right there is where his football career fully ends. NFL, CFL, Arena Football League. And that was the only place he saw success was the Arena Football League. But over the years, so, well, now we'll talk about his gambling and just how bad it really was. Over the years... Schleister committed more than 20 felonies. He gambled away almost entire salaries from the NFL, Arena Football League. Whenever he ran low on money, which was frequent, he stole it and conned it from friends, strangers, friends of friends, you name it. 
he would also pass bad checks saying hey here's a two thousand dollar check can you give me 500 this two thousand dollar check is collateral you just can't cash it until you know two weeks from now so he just stole five hundred dollars from you gave you a check you won't be able to cash and it's now got a two-week head start and he's gone at the time when he started gambling casinos still took personal checks which is something i had no idea was even a thing he would write a check to the casino use that money to gamble and he believed that he he was so confident in himself he was so delusional he believed that he could gamble enough to win to pay them back and that's just such a constant theme of this dude his goal was to make enough to pay them back but also to make some profit however he was a horrible gambler he literally lost all the time in a 2007 interview with ESPN, he estimated that he had stolen 100 excuse me, he had stolen 1.5 million dollars over the years and then he added this little asterisk if not more. And yeah, it was a lot fucking more than that. 1.5 million him stealing him stealing only 1.5 million dollars is generously low. He stole way more than that. So between 1987 and 1992, Sleaser had been arrested three times in Ohio for passing a total of $50,000 in bad checks. And this is the problem with being, you know, back where you're from because he was still remembered for his stardom at Ohio State University. He only received probation or suspended sentences or this and this and this. Oh, this guy throws a football good. Let's just forget the fact he just stole $50,000. In 1989, he had moved to Las Vegas after marrying his longtime girlfriend, a woman named Mitzi, in hopes of getting treatment for his addiction, which is ironic as hell. Move to Las Vegas to get help for your addiction to gambling? That's never gonna happen. The entire time he played for the Detroit Drive, he was running up Maslin gambling debts, and it got to the point that the general manager of the Detroit Drive, a guy named Gary Vito, helped him pay them off. Like, this is insane that people are willing to give this dude the benefit of the doubt. But, you know, poor Gary Vito probably lost a hundred plus thousand dollars on this dude. Soon after arriving in Ohio, he was again arrested for passing a bad check. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shocking. He admitted he had suffered a relapse, but the Rockers were still willing to stand by him, which, hometown kid, we gotta give him the benefit of the doubt. They worked out a deal with Schleister in which they put most of his paycheck into an account to pay his gambling debts so he would never see the money itself. The money was going to the people that he had scammed, except for $300, which they gave to Mitzi, his wife. However, by the end of the 1992 season, the Rockers were like, dude what the fuck are you doing they lost patience with him with they lost patience with him and asked him to take a substantial pay cut if he wanted to return for the 1993 season which if we go back to us talking about that's the year he said he would step away to try and get help it's like no he didn't want to get fucking help he was just throwing a fit because they wouldn't pay him more and actually in a 2020 interview the former AFL commissioner at the time, a guy named Joe O'Hara, claimed Schleister was actually forced out 
of the Arena Football League when he was caught betting on an Arena Football League game, which color me shocked. This entire time he's married and is just absolutely decimating his family. He pawned, he stole his wife's wedding ring and pawned it. She had taken it off during birth, giving birth to their child. He stole it off the table and pawned it. To his credit, he did try to go get it back, but it had been sold by then. So poor Mitzi, this entire time, you read about it and it's just so sad. Mitzi would say that he frequently stayed up late tracking scores and Mitzi would find him vomiting the next morning from what he always claimed was the flu, but was probably him realizing that he had just lost another six figures of some variety. Mitzi, again, to her credit, did her best to protect her and the, and they had two children, protect the family. Um, for instance, she never allowed Art to have a checkbook, but once they moved out to Vegas in 1994, he stole a box of old checks from her sister, Mitzi's sister, his sister-in-law, and would use them. He would write bad checks again, same old thing. He would use them to gamble. Of course, he lost it all. You can't be shocked at this point. So now he's involved his sister-in-law, his wife, and random people in between. The bank, it was clear that he was never going to be able to pay it back, and they reported him to the FBI. Mitzi, at this point, lost all of her patience with him and moved with the two kids back to her home state of Indiana. After losing just hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars and essentially everything he had owned in Vegas, he tried to move back to Indiana to reconcile with Mitzi, but look, it's, you feel so bad for her, dude. Like, it's crazy. Um, soon after moving back to Indiana, he was charged with fraud for passing another $175,000 in bad checks at Las Vegas casinos, many of which he had stolen from a radio station, KVEG. He had stolen them from the owner, and he had passed most of the checks at a Treasure Island resort and casinos, if you're from Minnesota and wherever else they might have those. Those ads are fucking everywhere. Uh, he pleaded guilty. You know, he was dead to rights. Federal prosecutors were initially willing to go easy on him and offer him a deal that would let him self-report to a federal prison camp for a sentence of 15 months, which is fucking insane that, that they were willing to give that to him. But thank God the prosecutors learned that he had been passing bad checks in Indiana as well, and they persuaded the judge to remand him to custody meaning this dick shit was going to prison. In January of 1995, he was sentenced to two years in prison, and prosecutors later discovered Schleister had passed another $500,000 in bad checks combined in Indiana, Nevada, and Ohio. This dude is such a fucking shithead. In 1996, April, he was released from the sentence after serving only 16 months. Only, uh... He immediately got arrested again for stealing checks from his employer and using them to get another $8,500 to gamble. At this time, he was sentenced to eight years in federal prison. Mitzi finally, formally divorced him, and in... Well, that was in 1998. 
He was released on probation in 1999 after serving only 13 months of his sentence. He returned home to Bloomingburg, Ohio, where he told friends that he still had connections to get prime tickets to Buckeye football games. Okay, he's an Ohio State legend. He told everybody that if they fronted him the money to buy the tickets, he would share the profit. I'm going to give you like a second and think, is this going to be legit? No, it was a scam. He stole another $500,000 from a dozen individuals, including his own dad. And before he was arrested, he pled guilty and sentenced to five years in prison. This is, he has been back and forth between prison. This is at this point way past, you know, oh, my girlfriend broke up with me and I have all this pressure from being a success at Ohio State. This dude is actively just choosing to be one of the worst individuals of all time. So all in all, between 1995 and 2006, 11 years between being arrested or you know sentenced, being in holding, he had served the equivalent of 10 years in a combined 44 different county jails and federal prisons, including the time where he was held before sentencing while awaiting his sentencing he spent all but 358 days between November of 1994 and June of 2006 in either prison or jail. In that 11 year span, 10 and a half year span, all but 358 days, he wasn't in custody. It's fucking insane. And even then, after he had been sentenced, he, he, he was given a public defender in this story. A woman named Lig Linda Wagner smuggled a cell phone into the Marion County Jail for him so he could place debts. He told her he wanted to stay in contact with his daughters and this, this, and this, whatever. Wagner was sentenced to two years probation and had her law license suspended for only 90 days. This dude will scam fucking anybody. He claims he hit rock bottom in 2004. I would say he hit rock bottom way before that, but he said specifically about this instance, he was caught gambling in prison and placed in solitary confinement, which that's how I know I am not built for prison. Solitary confinement terrifies me. He was sentenced to solitary for four months, but even in jail, he's able to con people. He was released after 100 days for good behavior. He's convincing them somehow that, guys, I've learned my lesson. Please let me out. He was then released from prison on June 16th, 2006, and moved back in with his mom in Ohio. And at this point, as a result of lawsuits and all of this, he owed half a million dollars in restitution which is a small fraction of what he actually stole you know there were multiple cases where he was charged with writing five hundred thousand dollars in bad checks on multiple occasions but lawsuits x y and z he only owed that exact amount sleaster again Trying to boost his ego after moving home, founded a nonprofit organization called Gambling Prevention Awareness to educate others about the perils of compulsive gambling, including college and NFL players. 
He then went into went into an interview with ESPN saying that he started gambling because the pressure of being Ohio State's starting quarterback was just too much for him, this poor guy. And he just wanted to be a regular guy. He just wanted to be cool art. Art, the guy who studies business at Ohio State, he didn't want to be, you know, well-liked and handsome and charming and all of this. He didn't want to, you know, have success on the football field. It was too much for him. He wanted to go get an accounting degree and live in an office for the rest of his life. So, unfortunately for him, he was just a really good quarterback and he had no choice but to gamble. Feel bad for him, guys. And then in late 2009, Slicer and his mother appeared in TV ads opposing an Ohio casino, which was on their ballot. It was it was on their statewide ballot about opening casinos in the state of Ohio. And Slicer and his mom were on these commercials and they're so hilarious. You should absolutely look them up on YouTube. So in 2009, sounds like things might be going well for him. You know, he's got his nonprofit. He's, you know, showing up in ads, advocating against gambling and He actually went on to then write an autobiography this year, and then he also went on to work at a radio station in Columbus uh, with a guy named John Corby, which was hosted every Wednesday. I'm sure there's some good archived bits from that. So two years after this, you know, we think everything's going good, right? He's got his TV ads. He's got his nonprofit. Well, two years later, well, not even two years later. We'll get to what happens two years after this, but around the same time, 2009, Slicer reunited with a Columbus heiress by the name of Anita Barney. She is the widow of the former CEO of Wendy's. Now, if you think his intentions are good, you're a fool. Uh, so, unfortunately, her son, Alan Vatko, had been gravely injured in a 1981 plane crash that also killed his father as well as three others. Barney believed that Allen's recovery was due in large part to Schleister visiting his bedside, which is a very sweet thing. It's a very sweet thought if if it's true. But over the next two plus years, which is why I said two years, Slicer conned her over a million dollars. It's this this fucking guy, man. He nearly depleted her fortune. Her fortune, which was, you know, the result of being the wife to the CEO of Wendy's and then tragically losing her husband in a plane crash that also gravely injured her son. And then he convinced her that, oh, you know, your son is getting better because I'm visiting his bedside it's it's incredible scumbag behavior february 9th of 2011 reports emerged that slicer was under investigation for fraud and it subsequently emerged that slicer had conned thousands of dollars under the pretense of buying ohio state football game tickets he what he would do is he would say that you know he needed the money up front he'd get you the tickets later tickets never came obviously con people out of thousands of dollars running this scam. Uh, Schleiser was charged with a first-degree felony in connection with the theft, but it came 
even more, Schleister was then actually charged with a first degree felony in connection with the theft of more than $1 million on February 14th, 2011. He just never stops being a fucking shithead. And he somehow never stops getting out of prison either, it's insane. Prosecutors later said that Schleister started gambling again almost as soon as he left prison, which if you thought otherwise, you're, I don't even know if you've been listening this entire time. He's never going to stop, whether his girlfriend breaks up with him or the pressure of Ohio State is too much. No, he's never going to stop. Prosecutors discovered he had visited gambling dens in Nevada, West Virginia, Indiana, um, as well as taking trips on casino riverboats along the Ohio River. You name it, you, the prosecutors probably found out he was there. A guy like this, you could be in Alaska, you could be in Hawaii. The scumbag probably gambled in your state, and you probably stole money from people in your state. He relaunched that ticket buying scheme as early as 2009, which is what he gets into it with Anita Barney, the CEO, widow. His total time imprisonment, he spent at a combination of prisons. He was in South Carolina, and then he was in Colorado, and then the Indianapolis Star, a newspaper actually did an article about him that documented how he continued to gamble while in prison. He, and the way that this worked was he had women place bets for him and was running a another Super Bowl ticket scheme from inside prison. <sighs> You know, <laughs> either way, uh, when prison, prison officials learned about it, they cut off his email access for 90 days, which, to be quite honest with you, I didn't even know you had access to email in prison. He was released from federal prison actually last year, August 18th, 2020, and transferred to Ohio State custody to serve the remainder of his sentence. His lawyers had attempted to get the remainder of his sentence waived because he had health reasons, which we'll talk about. However, Franklin County Common Pleas Judge Chris Brown uh, took, you know, he, he wasn't having it. He said that Schleister was, quote, past the point of rehabilitation, which if there is one thing to summarize that, this dude, Art, I completely agree. He has been past the point of rehabilitation for a long time. And he had not shown that he could, quote, conduct himself appropriately if released. Brown added that he was sympathetic to Slicer's health concerns and would have been more, more than willing to grant an early release if there was any evidence of remorse, which is another excellently eloquated point about Schleister. He never showed any remorse. There was always an excuse. His girlfriend broke up with him. There was pressure. This, this, and this. It's Eventually, you just get tired of hearing it. Um, Brown did later say that Schleister had, quote, demonstrated over and over that he could not be trusted. Well said. Please judge Chris Brown. So, his health issues that were uh, previously referenced, he was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease as well as dementia, which they say are the side effects of numerous concussions, which it's cited that between 15 and 17 total concussions for Art Schleister, which if you've even had more than like two, it's concussions are nothing to joke around about. 
but he had suffered all of these over 20 years of his football career via you know whether it was juniors junior high high school um college professional his public defender in the 2011 case a guy named steven nolder said that slicer had been diagnosed with quote deficits in his frontal lobes which have been linked to depression impulsivity and impaired judgment some doctors actually do believe that currently Schleister has CTE, which, if you don't know, is a degenerative, de degenerative disease uh, caused by repeated blows to the head. Mainly, you can really only find out if somebody has it after they die and you study their brain. But that is the long and exhausting and infuriating story of Art Schleister. Draft bust, degenerate, scumbag, all of that. You name it. He... If you gave this dude $10, if you ever ran into him, I hope you made out all right. He didn't steal money from you. If you're looking to contact him, Schleister is inmate number A777924 at the Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Correction. He is presently incarcerated at Ohio State Penitentiary and with his earliest possible release, September 29th, 2021. If suddenly in October you are in the state of Ohio and you see a fat bald dude telling you he can get you tickets to the Super Bowl, I wouldn't believe him if I were you. Thank you so much if you took the time to listen. I really appreciate it. My name is Greg. I'll see you in the next one.